The refugees and displaced persons in the Kivu region of Zaire remain without assistance today. From experience, Medicine Sans Frontieres knows that mortality rates in such a situation can reach 10 deaths per 10,000 people per day. The number of Rwandan and Burundian refugees in that region of Zaire is estimated at 1.2 million. Thus, 1,200 people could die every day. This hypothesis does not include the victims of fighting or the Zairean populations who are also seriously affected by problems in the region. It's November 1996. By now, MSF has released countless press releases on the desperate situation in eastern Zaire. This latest release from MSF France on the 9th of November echoes an earlier statement that extrapolated the number of deaths that may well happen if MSF and other humanitarian organisations can't get into the refugee camps in the Central African country soon. It continues. An MSF cargo plane arrives in Kigali this morning, carrying medical supplies as well as aid teams. Those teams will try to cross the Rwandan border into Zaire. As of now, all access has been denied. Médecins Sans Frontières renews its call for an international military force to create safe zones so that the refugee and displaced populations may benefit from protection and safe access to aid. This has been MSF's line on the crisis for months, but there's a stalemate at the UN and MSF is struggling to get the urgency of the message across. We'd been fighting off the journalists and saying we don't have data, we don't know at the moment because we, we couldn't see all the refugees. So what happened is that you had a lot of epidemiologists and nutritionists, for example, writing in the case that, you know, if they have no food, if there are this many, if they haven't had access, you know, then this could be the possibility. After two days of discussions, the UN Security Council finally adopts an interim resolution accepting the principle of a multinational force for what it deems humanitarian purposes. But the decision of an intervention is delayed. The US in particular is not keen on the proposal from France to send in troops. The Council's lethargic reaction provokes criticism from the European Commissioner for Humanitarian Affairs, who describes it as an international scandal. The ongoing fighting means MSF teams are still stuck at the border to Zaire, unable to access over a million Hutu refugees and Zairean displaced people in the east of the country. With the painfully slow-moving UN diplomacy, MSF is trying to break the deadlock, but is faced with a dilemma. Is it wise for a humanitarian organisation to predict the worst? Today, we say enough. Even war as wolves. Stop the bombing of defenseless civilians in Chechnya. There should not be a scientific uh, research for that. We know that those people are dying. I'm Nick Owen. This is Speaking Out, the hunting and killing of Rwandan refugees in Zaire, a podcast by MSF. Episode 3. Under fire in the press. It's early November 1996, and for nearly 10 days, MSF teams in Rwanda have been watching reporters cross the border into North Kivu in eastern Zaire. The journalists are being ushered into the region's capital, Goma, by the same Tutsi rebels who are blocking the aid team's access. Goma lies right on the border, and so MSF can literally see the city they're unable to reach. 
After days of reading in the papers about the wounded and dead in the Kivus, MSF and the other NGOs in the area are finally allowed into Goma on the 11th of November. Samantha Bolton is press officer for the Great Lakes. So when the authorities opened the borders, and when I'm saying authorities, it was military and civilian, they said, OK, today everyone's invited to the stadium. It was the soccer stadium where the first cholera cases had been treated um, in 94. And they said, you know, all the NGOs, all the non-governmental organisations are going to come to the stadium and we will organise you. We will tell you what you can do. You'll all come in a convoy at the same time. The reporters are waiting. And then we'll show everyone how we're rebuilding Zaire. So they told us to drive the cars inside. And then obviously, you know, MSF, we were a bit wary because, you know, you have your brand, your T-shirts. You know, we always prided ourselves in being independent from any government or any donor. And so we kind of parked to the side and then everyone else went in. The last minute we kind of slipped out and then it was a bit of a circus, you know, with um, all the authorities unloading supplies and saying, thank you very much, you know, you can now go home. We're going to distribute these supplies and as you can see, we don't need the NGOs anymore. So they were trying to show that they had all the... NGOs under their control and that, you know, they were planting flowers on the side of the road, that everything was very well organised. So the control issue and showing that things were functioning was extremely important for them. But MSF is still not allowed to bring international staff into the Magunga camp just outside the city where 400,000 Hutu refugees are trapped between the warring parties. On one side is Kabila's alliance, which includes local Zaire and Tutsi, the Banya Malenge, and is backed by the new Tutsi regime in Rwanda. And on the other are the perpetrators of the 1994 Rwandan genocide, who have recruited local Zairean Hutu and are supported by Zairean President Mobutu's armed forces. A couple of days later, the United States finally announces that they're willing to send a 1,000 US soldiers to join the new international security force. The force will be under Canada's command and the UN Security Council is due to authorise their deployment within days. It's a tiny step forward on the international diplomacy front. The next day, the MSF team in the Rwandan capital message all directors of operational sections with an update. MSF's position is that we are pleased the military intervention is happening, but that we are disappointed that it is not, at this point, going to separate the criminals. No lessons learned from past experience. It will not be Chapter 7 as we wanted. MSF does not want to have weapons to defend aid convoys, but to secure and protect the population. Chapter 7, that's a mandate for an international force permitted to use armed force if necessary. MSF is still concerned about the force's weak mandate. A press statement reiterates the point that without a strong mandate, the operation will only provide a short-term solution. It continues, Such a short-term solution is a mere band-aid at best, and a recipe for disaster at worst. After a meeting with Canadian government representatives on the 15th of November, MSF Canada leads on updating the other MSF programme managers in Africa, since the international force will be under their country's command. But the news doesn't sound promising. A significant portion of the Canadian military is already in motion and en route to the theatre. MSF pushed the military to identify when the forces will be at full strength in theatre. Note that for the Persian Gulf War it took six months. UNITAF in Somalia took three and a half months. 
They have no idea because they have yet to confirm who will bring what to the theatre. The message continues, we're not getting the intervention that will help us or deal with the political causes of the conflict. And so the recommendations to MSF staff on the ground are to quote, grin and bear it and fasten your seatbelt. It's going to be a bumpy ride. That same day in eastern Zaire, the Alliance attacks the Magunga camp near Goma. The Alliance of Democratic Forces for the Liberation of Congo Zaire are the coalition of Rwandan-Ugandan troops and other forces who are trying to empty the refugee camps in Zaire. MSF international staff still don't have access to the camp, and the French section issues an urgent press release that's also sent out by MSF Holland. This morning... Heavy shooting and mortar shelling at the Magunga refugee camp forced thousands of people to flee Rwanda. Refugees report that many wounded have been left behind. Humanitarian organisations cannot reach most of the victims. At 12.15 Central European time, 2,000 refugees had crossed the Rwandan border at Yuseni. An MSF doctor reports... These people are in relatively good health, but it is the fittest who are crossing. Some of them say they have been hiding in the forest for a week, eating leaves. They say that they are prepared to try their luck in Rwanda, rather than face hunger or death in Zaire. MSF teams in Zaire have seen 20 bodies at Mugunga camp. They count 300 persons every 100 metres, This would translate into approximately 90,000 people fleeing along the 28-kilometre road to Rwanda. The humanitarian priorities are water, food and mobile first aid stations. Emergency supplies of dressing kits, high-protein biscuits, jerry cans and bladder tanks are en route to the border. There is no guarantee that they will be allowed to cross. Some press and humanitarian observers assume that the refugees are returning to Rwanda because of the news that there may soon be an armed international intervention in the region. The UN Security Council's unanimous vote to pass the resolution, authorising deployment of force, later that evening, only confirms this view for many. The general belief is also that the Hutu extremists who've been hiding amongst the civilians in the camps and holding the refugee population hostage are running in the opposite direction, away from the Alliance forces, into the thick Kivu forests. The Rwandan ambassador to the UN argues that an intervention is no longer needed, as all the Hutu refugees are on their way back to Rwanda now anyway, and will have returned by the end of the weekend. MSF does not see it this way. Françoise Boucher-Saulnier is MSF legal advisor. À Médecins Sans Frontières, on n'a jamais cru que l'armée rwandaise avait mené une opération humanitaire pour libérer les camps. At MSF, we never really believed that the Rwandan army had carried out a humanitarian operation to free the camps, and everything had gone well. We tried to prove that this wasn't true, but in fact, we found ourselves confronted with a disinformation campaign, perhaps for the first time in our history, which tended to say that all the refugees had been released, and that everyone had returned. Information that was a form of negationism. The Rwandan government used violence, and obviously the West, especially the Americans, supported this, because everyone was delighted that the problem of these refugee camps had finally been resolved. To be able to show the public images of these crowds being liberated from the camps and returning to the Promised Land was finally the end of the publicity nightmare for the powers that be, and for the Western powers which were accused of supporting the perpetrators of the genocide in these refugee camps. 
At MSF, we didn't believe it, but we'd underestimated the energy that had been put in by everyone to make people believe this fiction. We thought that people were dead and that the Battle of the Camps had led to many people being killed, while others had had to flee and were perhaps still in danger and needed us. We had to be able to demonstrate these things, because if they were dead, it meant that those who had returned were also in danger, because they had returned under the control of Rwandan forces and Kabila's alliance. And then all of those who'd managed to escape continued to be in danger as well, because they were hidden on the other side of the border, scattered in the forest without any help. We were all constantly worried about them. Instead of listening to us, the media accused us and said things like, are you all saying this because you're against the Rwandan regime? Or you want more money to help these people in the forest? Or are you just upset to lose these refugee camps that were making some NGOs rich? However, our speaking out disturbed people and it was called into question, including by the Western media. And that, I think, was the beginning of something that MSF must continue to reflect on. Because these accusations of spreading fake news and carrying out humanitarian action within the context of fake news organised by the United States is something that I think we came across for the first time in Zaire, but that we have come across regularly since. In North Kivu, MSF establishes dispensaries at the Mugunga camp and in Goma town together with other NGOs. They also set up drinking water and first aid stations every four kilometres along the road between the two sites. In a press release on the 16th of November, MSF announces that there are three suspected cases of cholera in the Magunga camp. It demands Goma Airport is open for humanitarian aid flights to allow medical personnel, cholera kits and water and sanitation equipment into the city. The Rwandan Vice President and Defence Minister Paul Kagame tells the world's media that he supports the Tutsi rebels' cause in eastern Zaire as they fight alongside Kabila's alliance. But, Kagame says, humanitarian organisations should spend money on feeding Rwandans who've returned home rather than those in refugee camps outside the country. The refugees' return from eastern Zaire is controlled entirely by the new regime in Rwanda. So much so that a journalist writing for the French weekly Le Nouvel Observateur calls what's happening in Zaire entirely a Rwandan internal affair. Obviously, Rwandan military leaders have a plan they are implementing. It appears to have US endorsement. At least that's what diplomats visiting the area imply. Their objective is to resolve, once and for all, the problems that hundreds of thousands of Hutu refugees, controlled by Inhera Hamwe militiamen and ex-Rwandan army, pose at the Rwandan border. You get the impression that they're counting on disease to resolve the military problem which the hardcore Hutu constitutes, a Medicine Sans Frontières official said angrily. After noting that Rwandan authorities are particularly skilled at using time to their advantage, a diplomat referred to the policy as one of deadly benign neglect, allowing epidemics to decimate the most militant Hutu and then directing the survivors' return to Rwanda. By keeping the cameras from focusing on events, Rwandan authorities, who fully understand modern media's impact, this CNN effect, know that without images there is no humanitarian catastrophe, and thus no need for a foreign intervention that could have been disruptive. Foreign reporters are sometimes prevented from gaining a close-up view of the tragedy, while travel passes are sometimes distributed to a few to avoid a swell of journalists. Humanitarian organisations are subject to the same cold-shoulder treatment. 
the large Western nation's procrastination, especially on the part of the US, suits Kigali just fine. Another part of Kigali's strategy is to make sure the returning refugees spend as little time as possible on the road once they get to Rwanda. They don't want camps to be set up along the route. On the 19th of November, Rwandan authorities close one of the MSF way stations set up to care for the returning Hutu refugees on a road leading inland into Rwanda. An MSF nurse gives a statement on what they witness there. Early in the afternoon, two civilian representatives from the refugee ministry visited while we were distributing BP5 biscuits to the children and most vulnerable. They told us we were not to give them out. An hour later, at 1400, around a dozen Rwandan soldiers arrived and gave us four hours to clear out. They told us we had to take everything down immediately because we had created a mini-camp, a rest station. They didn't want people to stop even for a half day, regardless of their health. We had 20 diarrhoea patients, six of whom could not be moved. The local MSF staff told me that while I had been talking to some of the soldiers, others had roughed them up, struck them and threatened to stab them in the belly. Speaking to the Belgian newspaper Le Soir, the MSF operations manager for Zaire and Rwanda lays out the difficulties of treating people constantly on the road like this. Helping the refugees is like walking a tightrope, he says. It's stressful and we're seeing increasing discontent among them. Epidemiologists are worried about cholera in Rwanda, while human rights advocates are concerned that the local chief magistrates who are responsible for registering and distributing aid to the returning refugees are monitored by only 90 observers, who are themselves responsible for hundreds of thousands of people. Questions are raised internationally about the relevance of MSF's call for a military intervention in light of the refugees' apparent return to Rwanda. The USA and several other nations want to re-examine their participation in the force, but France maintains it's still necessary. MSF, the UN High Commission for Refugees and the International Committee of the Red Cross also deem it necessary. They point to South Kivu, where an estimated half a million people have been living without international assistance for even longer than those around Goma in North Kivu. A UN spokesperson says, I don't think we should give up. It's premature to say that a multinational force will not be sent. Later that evening, the Alliance announces they will open up a humanitarian corridor to allow the Hutu refugees trapped in South Kivu to return to Rwanda. Some see this as a tactical decision by the media-savvy rebels at a time when the US is still weighing up an international force. A safe corridor for the Hutu refugees to return through means that military force looks less essential. On the surface, that is. The battle over the number of refugees in eastern Zaire and the need for an international force are continuing to cause MSF problems in the media. MSF press officer Samantha Bolton sends a message to programme managers outlining the media's increasingly negative attitude towards them and others operating in the field. NGOs are being blamed for being inactive and unprepared and making money off disaster. We are being blamed for no food distribution. Journalists are all commenting on what a bad job we're doing. This is one of the hardest and most hardened press corps attitudes I've ever had to deal with vis-a-vis humanitarian aid and refugees. This is the antithesis of the Bob Geldof era, the humanitarian aid holiday 
is over. We know all journalists personally, and even then it is very difficult. In UNHCR press briefs, the spokesperson is as cynical as the journalists. And the whole attitude is that everyone just wants the story to be over so they can all go home. And that, in any case, these bloody refugees have what was coming to them. She finishes saying simply, sick atmosphere. MSF teams start revising the organisation's position on this issue and on proposals for the refugees' safe return to Rwanda. MSF Holland's Director of Communications and Fundraising messages all sections telling them to coordinate their public statements and to close ranks in the face of the ongoing media attacks on humanitarian organisations. But the controversy only deepens over the next few days. On the 22nd and 23rd of November 1996, the Americans present satellite images of the Kivu region at the US Embassy in Kigali. Many believe that they've been sitting on these photographs for a while. Samantha Bolton. We didn't know what condition these refugees were in, and we knew we could hear and we could see the US Army and you know the flights going over the jungle, and they had all this kind of heat sensoring equipment. And they kept saying, Oh, we have no information. Like, well, if you have no information, why do you keep doing these flights? You know, and you have we know you have information, but they weren't sharing it because we wanted to know, you know, in essence, where were these people? Where were these pockets of people? How were they moving? How fast? Um, you know, and if they were permanent camps or if they were moving. And that's what nobody knew, and we never got any answers on that. And every day during the interviews at the hotel, I said openly, you know, there's a problem with the Americans. They're doing these flights. We don't know what they're doing, and they're not sharing their information. And then one day the um, press attaché came out and started yelling at me in front of the journalists and, and said, you people at MSF are angry because the refugees are coming back healthy. Listen to the tone of your voice when you talk about the US. It's disgusting that you're talking about the US like this. So I said to the Christian Science Monitor reporter who was interviewing me, this is your ambassador. Does it seem like he's neutral in this whole thing? Does he seem very diplomatic to you? So I yelled at the attaché, you're a really great diplomat. Can't you hear the tone of your own voice? So, I mean, as you can hear, a lot of the politics or a lot of the lobbying was going on in public, you know, with this array of journalists. And of course, a lot of people were playing games, you know, because there was nothing to see. We had no evidence of anything. So it was a lot, you know, what was the tone of this? It was hugely political and there was a lot of pressure on all of us at the time. But the press and the NGOs are briefed separately and the numbers don't seem to add up. So someone asked whether there were still any refugees out there and what happened to the Interahamwe who'd fled. And MSF kept saying, OK, there are 250,000 people. We can't have lost them. And so the Americans were answering, oh, it's very difficult. We can't see anything because of the jungle and the trees. And even the UNHCR at this point was saying, come on, you know, help us, give us some information. But they weren't providing any information. So we were all still in the dark, despite all these overflights. And so they said, oh, we don't want to give out any information because the Rwandans could use it to find the refugees. But we suspected that they were giving the information anyway because they were very close to Kigali. And, you know, the British and the Americans were kind of in the pockets of this new Anglophone administration. Um, anyway, when we went to the briefing, they treated us like idiots. They would do one briefing for the NGOs and all of the UN. And then half an hour later, they'd do another one for the reporters and the journalists. And they gave us different information. You know, and obviously this is pre-social media days when everyone could just easily record things. But, you know, we still knew what was going on, right? And so then the Washington Post would call and they'd say, uh, there are no refugees, what's that about? I'd say, no way, your diplomat's giving you different briefings to the ones we get. 
So we were saying, okay, well, if there are no refugees missing, why wouldn't they show the photos? You know, they had these heat maps. And then I went to the hotel immediately afterwards to find the journalists and to tell them, hey, you know, they're talking nonsense. They're telling us one thing half an hour earlier and then they're coming to you and telling you another. So what's going on here? You know, and then they all left to the embassy to find out because obviously, you know, discrepancy, there's obviously something going on and it's potentially a good story. And um, we, we recovered a little credibility because obviously we'd had some issues with numbers and the fact that we weren't there you know, that we were at least telling them the truth about this discrepancy between what we were being told and what, you know, even the UN was receiving as information. So it was really an information battle, you know, with the UNHCR, the Americans and Kigali on who was saying what about which groups of soldiers, refugees and into a These figures are challenged by the Rwandan government who say that only a few refugees are still on the road in the Kivus. They demand $700 million from the international community to help reintegrate the returning Hutu refugees in Rwanda. By now, most of eastern Zaire has fallen into the hands of the alliance, which is supported by the new Rwandan regime. On the 23rd of November 1996, UNHCR confirms there are 700,000 Rwandan refugees still in eastern Zaire and renewed its request to be able to reach them and provide aid. Press officer Samantha Bolton tells colleagues that from now on, all MSF sections should keep a low profile on political supposition and stick to facts. It's the only way to do damage control, she says. But the criticism only gets worse. A couple of days later, a scathing article appears in the Belgian newspaper Le Soir, in which the journalist begins with some of the statements MSF and other humanitarian organisations have put out in the past few weeks. They are dying like flies. If we don't intervene, 12,500 will die every day. That means one million dead by Christmas. It will be a hidden genocide. Cholera will decimate them all. The failed history of what has been presented as the greatest humanitarian disaster of all time remains to be written. Instead, the massive and peaceful return of Hutu refugees from Zaire confounded politicians' warning cries and caught most humanitarian organisations off guard. Contrary to all predictions, Rwandan authorities demonstrated that they indeed wanted the exiles to return, despite the material and psychological problems that would follow. But most importantly, the refugees' statements, as well as the physical condition of the majority, confirms everything that has been said about them. The reality of the camps was that for two and a half years, Humanitarian aid strengthened the grip of the political and military officials responsible for genocide over a people held hostage. That should have led to those organisations whose naivety, blindness and even complicity contributed to perpetuating the problem to take a more moderate stand. But the opposite occurred. Those who had not witnessed the violence and duress in the camps were the ones who issued the strongest criticisms referring to virtual genocide when the camps were dismantled, thereby easing the executioner's grip on their hostages. One of the criticisms thrown at MSF and others is the accusation that they are over-exaggerating the crisis in order to make money to support the existence of their organisations. In an interview with the BBC, British anthropological researcher and human rights activist Alex de Waal says... 
Many agencies cannot survive unless they have regular high-profile appeals and competition is getting sharper. These messages raise money. A more honest line would be, people are having a hard time and some will die and your money can help them a bit, probably. But it doesn't bring in the funds. Aid appeals exaggerate and simplify. But not all the media are quite so harsh. French newspaper Liberation goes some way to explain the nuances. The refugee problem has disrupted the Great Lakes region for two years. During that time, in the eyes of the public, humanitarian aid organisations have been in that perennially awkward position of announcing a catastrophe that has not occurred. But when and if it comes to pass, the evidence suggests that aid will arrive too late. To understand the situation... One needs to recognise that providing aid and developing aid strategies in unstable regions is not an exact science. The Great Lakes region is particularly difficult, with massive population movements occurring in record-breaking time. This poses serious problems for coordinating aid logistics. Dr Jacques D'Emiliano, MSF Holland General Director and MSF International Vice President, explains the reasons why the organisation decided to extrapolate the figures. When MSF France used those figures afterward, yeah, uh, you could also defend that position because we had to sail in the dark. But we knew from experience, let's say, where were the shallow waters and what could happen. And in general, from a humanitarian perspective, because we are not journalists, let's say we have to use what we call those days the precaution principle in terms of we cannot look at the world from too optimistic scenario because then it's always too little and too late when we react. So we have learned to a certain extent to be pessimistic when there are humanitarian crises in a context where there are massive human rights violations. We've seen that in Srebrenica, for example, And this context had all the elements of it, eh? in terms of eh, there was a genocide having occurred, there was a lot of hatred in Masisi around there. There were alliances uh, between eh, the the, the Hutu militia in the camps tried to use the, the population around also to continue, let's say, the massacres. And at the other hand, we had no access, so that's a very bad indication because people, one million people were dependent on, on, on food, water, healthcare, all was blocked. So then I think there is reason enough to present figures on a worst case scenario. Still, it are estimations, but the press took it as firm, uh, let's say, figures. And sometimes it's necessary to do it Otherwise, the international community was not moving at all. The most they were willing to do is to, to have humanitarian assistance access to give them a certain protection. MSF UK's executive director remembers what the organisation learned from this experience. When people left the camps, plump and well-fed, and returned to Rwanda... That was really a slap in the face for the humanitarian agencies, and especially those that had spoken out vigorously. I think that was the most interesting year because we had to defend ourselves, which had never happened to us. We had always been these great people, these good-looking doctors, another myth. 
We did a huge amount of work with the press and television networks, and we held public discussions on the obligation to make pessimistic projections and why it was necessary to make them. We found ourselves in a very useful position because that allowed us to explain the complexities of that kind of analysis, etc. I think we came out of it fine, but it was very uncomfortable. At the end of November, the European Commissioner defends their decision to speak out about their fears for Eastern Zaire, saying, I believe it was our duty to sound the alarm as we did. Yes, 400,000 to 500,000 refugees have returned to Rwanda. That's great, but where are the others? Now, it looks like we've found them. MSF Belgium's general director emails the other section heads to say he thinks the media message should now change radically. He says it no longer makes sense to call for an international force, considering that they've had a team go round Lake Kivu and currently have access to around 75% of the refugees there. He stresses that MSF called for a protection force, not an assistance force, writing, MSF sticks to its earlier call for a multinational force. However, Ongoing discussions and hesitation have shown that in reality, the force will be inadequately mandated to be a first step in bringing about a durable solution to the crisis in the Great Lakes region. Since the force will probably not have authority to separate and disarm the militia, and will not arrest and detain the perpetrators of the Rwandan genocide, impunity for human rights abuses will remain unaddressed. He echoes his colleague Samantha Bolton in saying that they should continue to stick to the facts and report only what MSF staff have witnessed themselves. At the start of December, MSF France's communications director, Jean-Hervé Bradol, writes a powerful op-ed in the French daily, La Croix, once again addressing criticisms of aid organisations in the media. For just once in this region, hundreds of thousands of people reached Rwanda on the 17th of November in good health. The impact of the images of this massive repatriation led some to question, sometimes harshly, aid organisations' mortality predictions. This requires a response. By definition, people who can walk for tens of kilometres are those who are healthy enough to do so. But the commentators obviously do not share that simple, common-sense observation. Usually, the dead and the seriously ill do not walk. Televised news reports showed interviews with heads of Rwandan families in which a father or mother often mentioned that one of the children had died in recent weeks. This did not seem to factor into the commentators' thinking either. However, the average Rwanda refugee family includes seven people. Who counted the bodies and graves in the still inaccessible hills of South Kivu? The Great Lakes region has accustomed us to nameless dead. In three years some one million human beings have died. Must we now become accustomed to unknown numbers of dead? So far, 500,000 people have returned to Rwanda, but there are 700,000 more, and we don't know what has happened to them. In November 1994, we decided that when the emergency phase ended, we would close our programmes in the Zairean refugee camps. The aid system enabled those who committed genocide to rebuild their forces at the international community's expense. For two years, they launched attacks from these camps. Those same attacks are the cause of the current conflict. The situation was unacceptable and constituted a serious threat for the region's population. 
Many observers criticised us after we decided to close the programmes in the Kivu camps. Perhaps we were wrong for being prematurely right. Even if we have to treat our projections with care, medical practice requires that we make them. It is an absolute precondition for implementing a prevention policy. Meanwhile, MSFUK's executive director prepares a response to Alex DeWall's criticism on the BBC, in which he said MSF and Oxfam were over-exaggerating the crisis to fill their own pockets. Again, caution is urged around the so-called numbers battle. Alex is a bit of a one-man band, but his criticism has definitely had a probably long-lasting impact in media land, particularly in the UK. It is very important that we do not drop our guard. I have read on MSF intranet that an MSF official has been quoted as saying that hundreds of thousands of people are about to flood into Kisangani, or was it another town? Once again, we are venturing figures that may turn out to be totally exaggerated. You might not be in the firing line in your country, but we are here, and the UK media is very influential in Europe and the US. We just cannot take a parochial view of this problem. I am urging you to brief your teams in the field to ensure that they do not describe rumour and estimates as fact. I know that all the mass graves of Eastern Zaire are not open yet, and that access is still not possible, but the attitude of the media has changed, and we cannot go on as if nothing had happened. There are going to be lots of 1996 retrospectives in the media over the next few weeks and the issue of the responsibility and accountability of aid agencies will be raised again. Even though the multinational force was formally constituted at the end of November, the debate over whether it's even needed in the region is still going on a week later. The AFP news agency reports. In a declaration on the situation in the Great Lakes, participants in the 19th France-Africa summit called on the UN and the Organisations of African Unity to do everything possible to ensure that the international forces deployed, emphasising that they were deeply troubled by the humanitarian implications of the situation. But on Thursday, Canada reversed course and said that the force, created formerly a week ago but currently reduced to fewer than 700 men, no longer had a purpose. The Defence Minister said that military intervention no longer seemed necessary at this stage because simply announcing that the force would be created had served a catalyzing role, prompting 600,000 Rwandan refugees to return home. This point of view is obviously shared by Rwanda. The Canadian general in command of the multinational force estimates there are fewer than 165,000 Rwandan Hutu in eastern Zaire now, but that his team would continue to make preparations. On the 12th of December, MSF France organises a symposium to mark their 25th anniversary. The theme is humanitarian responsibility, and the day includes discussions on the position of NGOs in the Great Lakes crisis. Questions include, must we resign ourselves to impotent medical power? And, how far should warlords be allowed to go in diverting aid to their own coffers? That same day, MSF Switzerland's communications director addresses the numbers saga in the Swiss weekly Lebdo. The figures didn't make people respond to the right issues. In fact, the numbers distracted from the real problems. Caught up in the media rush, the Western press felt frustrated at not having the images they were promised. So the commentators turned on the people who, in a way, misled them. 
In the same article, the French section's president, Philippe Bibesson, says that to accuse MSF of profiting from this situation would be to forget that in 1994, MSF withdrew completely from the region to alert the international community. We did that to show that humanitarian aid was feeding the war economy, he says. The next day, the steering committee of the international force that was to intervene in Eastern Zaire announces that the force will be dissolved by the end of the month. After all that, there will be no international force deployed to Zaire. In late December 1996, the furor over the numbers battle arrives in Holland. In an interview in a fundraising magazine, comments made by MSF Holland's head of fundraising are wrongly linked to statements about using figures in order to get more fundraising. For the next week, the story that MSF exaggerated in order to get funds spreads around the Dutch press despite MSF's best efforts to counter the story. The transcript of the original interview is never seen. MSF Holland's press officer, Ruud Herman, remembers that the whole saga forces MSF Holland to do a lot of self-reflection and examine what they did wrong and how they could improve for next time. Next time on Speaking Out, the hunting and killing of Rwandan refugees in Zaire. The MSF communications teams have had a tough few months on the Great Lakes crisis, learning the hard way that extrapolating figures, no matter how well-meaning the motives may be, can be hard to control in the world's media. But once MSF field teams are finally allowed into South Kivu, they no longer need to estimate figures. They can see the evidence with their own eyes. They took us to these sites where there were indeed areas of earth that had been displaced and they started digging them up again and uh, it was very hard to know who was actually buried there. I mean, there were signs that perhaps there were civilians because there was a child's sandal and, you know, a lot of clothing. But now MSF is faced with a new ethical dilemma. Should they speak out when MSF staff have not witnessed the killings themselves? And the questions become even more difficult when MSF exploratory teams begin to suspect that humanitarian workers are being used to lure refugees out of hiding and to their deaths. This MSF podcast is based on an original MSF case study called The Hunting and Killing of Rwandan Refugees in Zaire, Congo, 1996-1997. It's written by Laurence Binet and is part of the Speaking Out Case Studies series, a project by MSF International. This podcast series is produced and mixed by Andrea Rangecroft. Editorial direction is from Nancy Barrett, Laurence Binet, Martin Solnier, and Rebecca Golden-Timsar. The narrator is Nick Owen. The extracts are read by Danielle Stagg and Matthew Wade. Additional voiceovers are by Andrea Rangecroft and Alex Vincent. Music is by Lost Harmonies and Peter Sandberg. A special thanks to Samantha Bolton, Françoise Boucher-Saulnier and Dr Jacques Demiliano. To read the full study and discover other case studies, please go to our website, msf.org speakingout. Thanks for listening.